Welcome to The Pet Show with Jimmy Jelinek and Dennis Quaid. Show, we dedicate a full episode to one of the most improbable moments in the history of American espionage. While its origins are still shrouded in secrecy, the intent sprung from what was perceived to be at the time an intelligence gap between the United States and the Soviet Union after the failure of the CIA's Bay of Pigs invasion to depose Cuban leader Fidel Castro. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. Cuban army pilots opened the first phase of organized revolt with bombing raids on three military bases. Two of the B-26 light bombers then seek asylum in Florida. On the heels of the air raids, landings were effected by rebels at several places on the Cuban coast, and the rebellion against the red-tinged dictator was on, with the refugee pilot claiming a full-scale army revolt near. In the fateful days of its aftermath, followed by the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which saw the United States at the brink of World War III, the specter of a global communist takeover seemed quite real and all too frightening. The United States' answer to what Adlai Stevenson termed Soviet blackmail in Cuba was a quarantine of all offensive weapons being shipped from Russia to that island fortress. The U.S. threw up a steel fence prepared to stop any vessel carrying materials of war. In response, the CIA was given license to take the gloves off, so to speak, to help the United States and its allies secretly gain the upper hand in its various proxy battles with the Soviet Union. The result has been covered in countless books, films, and documentaries. The period from roughly 1962 to 1976 saw the CIA involved in everything from assassinations and coups to covert eavesdropping on American citizens, to the more outlandish and insidious programs like Project MK Ultra, which saw the CIA sponsoring grants into the use of LSD as an interrogation tool on unwitting subjects on university campuses. This period of time was undoubtedly the CIA at its most bold and unhinged. Untethered from the moral ambiguity of its programs, it probed into the far reaches of what was psychologically and scientifically probable and frankly permissible. In 1962, as an offshoot of the CIA's audio surveillance program, in response to everything else that was happening, work began on a new program that sought to use cats, that's right, cats, as roving spies, surgically implanting them with recording equipment, then inserting them into specific environments where they could blend in with the local feline population. These cats had to be trained to listen to specific commands and be attuned to certain voices. They gave the operation a name, Acoustic Kitty, and a target in Southeast Asia. All of this was theoretical, mind you. The equipment would have to be invented and the cats actually trained. And until today, the true story has never been told on a podcast. Let's check it out. There was a target in the Far East, who, uh, head of state, who allowed cats to roam freely in his conference room and in his, uh, in his offices. Uh, lots of cats, many cats. 
That's the voice of Robert Wallace, who served as the director of the CIA's Office of Technical Services until his retirement in 2003. During his time at the OTS, scientists developed systems for agents and case officers to communicate with each other using secret writing, short-range radio, microdots, sub-miniature cameras and satellites. They designed and built audio bugs, telephone taps, and surveillance systems. They made tracking devices, weapons, disguises, and fake documents, and conducted experiments in character assessment and even thought control. In other words, Bob was the Q of the CIA. Inside the case, you'll find an AR-7 folding sniper's rifle, .25 caliber, with an infrared telescopic sight. Now, watch very carefully. An ordinary tin of talcum powder. Inside, a tear gas cartridge. That goes in the case against the side here like that. The use of animals in espionage uh, really has a long history. Uh, the most recent history uh, of, in the 20th century would be during the Second World War when uh, carrier pigeons were used for carrying secret messages, covert communications, and uh, dogs were also used for a variety of uh, purposes during the Second World War by the intelligence services. The uh, use of animals by uh, in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, lots of experiments were done. Uh, I would say that the animals uh, largely were a marginal uh, element of, of the work, but perhaps some of the most intriguing work was also done uh, with, the, with the animals. Cats are inherently disobedient, and frankly, they're their own masters. Getting one to do anything, much less become a spy, is literally impossible. And it would be up to Wallace's Office of Technical Services to make it happen. Here he discusses the origins of Operation Acoustic Kitty. Almost all gadgets that are developed for spies uh, come from a requirement, from an operational requirement. And uh, we, uh, we're looking at a, uh, at a target uh, that we want to get at. And we, and we don't know how we can get at that target, whether it be an individual or whether it be information. Case of the acoustic kitty, uh, in the mid-1960s, there was a target, a head of head of government in Asia, in Southeast in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, who allowed cats to roam freely uh, in uh, his uh, his offices, in the areas of conference rooms where he would have sensitive discussions. Uh, we wanted to know uh, what those discussions were, and how could we put a bug? How could we put a transmitter? Uh, in uh, the area uh, so we could pick up those conversations. Well, somebody came up with the concept, well, look, there are already a number of cats running or roaming around there. Let's inject another cat just into this menagerie of, of animals. And uh, if we would put a, a uh, microphone and a transmitter, if this cat could carry those, well, we could listen in on what is being said. The agency's engineers and technicians certainly had their work cut out for them. Bugs in 1965 were not what you see in today's James Bond films. 
And for the cats to be effective spies, the implants couldn't affect any of their natural movements, lest the spies draw attention to themselves, or cause any irritation that would prompt the cats to try and dislodge the equipment by rubbing, clawing, or licking it. All the components, a power source, a transmitter, a microphone, and an antenna would also need to withstand the cat's internal temperature, humidity, and chemistry. So working with outside audio equipment contractors, the CIA built a 3 4 inch long transmitter to embed at the base of the cat's skull. Finding a place for the microphone was difficult at first, but the ear canal turned out to be the prime and seemingly obvious real estate. The antenna was made from fine wire and woven all the way to the tail, through the cat's long fur to conceal it. The batteries also gave the techies a little trouble since the cat's size limited them to using only the smallest batteries and restricted the amount of time the cat would be able to record. Uh, one of the things I like to say about the Office of Technical Service at CIA uh, is that there was never a challenge that they were unwilling to undertake, particularly if it came to technology. Uh, we're talking about the 1960s now, so the electronics of the day are still pretty clunky compared to you know, modern electronics. Uh, the microphones are a little larger than microphones are, are today. Uh, power, uh, all of these things need power, so you need a battery uh, to, uh, to power the microphone and the transmitter. Uh, those weren't the tiniest of things either in the uh, in the 1960s. The uh, additional challenge is that implanting any electronics in a mammal in the human body uh, is is very tricky. This this again is days. This is before we had pacemakers that are like common common practice. So so putting electronics in the high humidity, high moisture uh, uh, body. Of, of an animal, uh, again, it was, it was quite a challenge. Uh, no, nevertheless, uh, we took it on. Around the beginning of summer 1965, the first of several cats had been selected for work on Acoustic Kitty. The first of which, according to Wallace, was a black and white cat, selected for its excellent temperament and already quasi-obedient nature. The cat was also female, ironically, a hedge against any potential future cat fights that might damage the sensitive equipment inside. Uh, the, the implants were, uh, were uh, just under the skin, so they, they, were, not, they, they were not deeply Im embedded. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, two, uh, the two real implants were the, uh, uh, the, uh, the transmitter, um, the, the tra transmitter and the, uh, the battery pack, the small battery that went with it, and then the uh, hearing the, the microphone. Uh, once the veterinary, veterinarian opened up the uh, cat and there was uh, some some um, uh, blood in the in the room. Uh, one of the techs, uh, I'm told, collapsed. He didn't just sit down. He completely uh, <laughs> he completely lost it. So they uh, they uh, took him took him out, and he didn't have to continue to watch the rest of them. Surgically implanting sensitive recording equipment inside the cat was not the end of the process, but merely the beginning. For Operation Acoustic Kitty to truly be successful required that the cats be trained to listen and respond to directions.
For this, they turned to the one man who was capable of this task, Bob Bailey. To those within the animal training world, Bailey is somewhat of a god figure. He rose to early acclaim as the director of the Navy's animal training program, where he studied dolphin communication. Later, he joined Animal Behavior Enterprises in Hot Springs, Arkansas. He's responsible for the training of over 140 species of animal, 16,000 in all. By transferring the training methods to others in the field, he pioneered applied behavior analysis or operant conditioning, which is essentially getting an animal to want to do something versus being forced to do that task, which is at the heart of this philosophy. In their work, they trained everything from bears to chipmunks, dogs and cats, rabbits and giraffes, to perform in TV commercials and other enterprises. One of which were traveling shows featuring trained chickens, which were inexplicably popular in the mid 60s. By all intents and purposes, ABE was a thriving business. And it was to them that the government turned in 1965 to begin training cats and dogs for espionage work. We spoke to Bob Bailey from his home in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where the 84-year-old is still hard at work. Despite being nearly 60 years removed from the project, he still retains vivid details of the program, for which much is still classified. The Acoustic Kitty program, the cats were implanted with devices in their ears, the cochlear implant. The implants themselves were developed by a guy by the name of Robin Michelson out of the Stanford Research Institute. And uh, it was our task, and by the way, it was dogs also, dogs right. and cats. Uh, uh, we stopped at, we, we suggested anyway, we don't worry about the dogs because whatever we can do with the dog, we. Uh, 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 whatever we can do with a cat, excuse me, whatever we can do with a cat, we can do with a dog in half the time because the, the, the cats are far less trainable in the circumstances that we're talking about than a dog. Um, because these cats were supposed to go out into the environment and be directed by acoustically, uh, by ultrasonic sound, be able to be guided from one place to another. And the cats were implanted with devices in their ears, the cochlear implant. It was an elaborate process uh, in that uh, the, the actual implants required surgery. And it was a multi-step process. And the cats had to recover from each surgical process, uh, each surgical procedure. And uh, sometimes the, the procedure didn't work. And so they had, they always only did one ear at a time. So if it didn't work on one ear, they would try on the other ear. So they would select a cat uh, for uh, temperament. And we would also be selecting cats for temperament and sending them to them. But uh, the cats were selected. Uh, and uh, we would determine whether they would be really trainable. And when they were determined to be trainable, uh, that they would do the first step in the surgery. 
and then it would be a month or so later that we would then get the cats and we would continue with the training. They had to first recover from the surgical procedure. Right. Uh, and then be tested to be sure that the surgical procedure worked. And if it did, uh, they, the cat would heal and then they would send the cat to us or we would go pick it up. And then we would continue with the training. The training started indoors and then moved outdoors. Uh, we used, uh, in the, the beginning, nine kilohertz signals. And there were a number of different signals telling the cats what to do. And when the cats uh, uh, were far enough along in the training, we'd say, you know, everything is going very well. They are all healed up. Uh, we would be monitoring. We They sent us the equipment to monitor the hearing devices, the implanted hearing devices. So we would be sure that the batteries were working, that the implant itself was working. And then they would send the cat back to um, uh, the uh, Stanford Research Institute, where the next process uh, was commenced. Um, further implant occurred and then the cat would heal up uh, and then they would send it back to us where we would, I'll say, complete the training. Uh, and we would again continue. It was during this training that Bailey miraculously got the cat to follow the various protocols required for its mission. Uh, yes, the, uh, the cats were conditioned to follow certain signals. Now the signal, the, it didn't home in on a signal. The cat just learned to travel uh, in a certain direction as long as it heard a certain tone. And we could guide this cat to follow people or to over to where a person might be standing or sitting. And then we could give a cue for the animal to lie down or sit. And whatever the cat would hear, you could hear if, uh, if you had a receiver because the cat was a transmitter and you could be a half a mile away and you could listen to a conversation. Uh, we did find, which was to us quite interesting, that we could condition the animals to listen to particular sounds. Uh, in other words, we could have, if they really wanted to, uh, if they had a recording of a particular person's voice, that we could have, and we did this ourselves, uh, we could have conditioned the cats to listen for a, per a particular person's voice amongst a bunch of other people. Now here's where our story begins to diverge. In Robert Wallace's telling, which is the CIA-sanctioned version of the story, Acoustic Kitty never made it past the training stage. Here's what he has to say about that. There was never a deployment of the, of the cat. Uh, there were operational problems with uh, getting the cat, or they believed getting the cat introduced into the uh, other group of cats, but then the distance that was required uh, for us to actually hear the audio uh, was greater than where we would be able to uh, have a listening post. According to popular lore, it was during one of these training sessions that Acoustic Kitty bolted from the CIA van and was promptly hit by an oncoming cab. Agents then later returned to the scene and scooped up its remains, lest the technology fall into the hands of the Soviets. Our many myths that have 
arisen about the uh, cat, including the one that uh, Acoustic Kitty got run over by uh, uh, by a car. The CIA has its critics, that's for sure. But uh, uh, yes, one cat did get run over. It, it wasn't it wasn't the cat that was implanted with the device. <laughs> the cat that was implanted actually had two operations. It had a second operation to remove the the gear, the equipment that was in it. And uh, as, as far as I know, as far as I've been able to tell, uh, that cat then lived a normal life afterward. In Robert Wallace's official CIA narrative of Acoustic Kitty, this is where our story ends, in 1967, with the scrapping of the program. We even unearthed a CIA memo from a Freedom of Information Act request that reveals the existence of the program and ultimately its abandonment of animal spies. Our final examination of trained cats for use in Redacted convinces us that the program would not lend itself in a practical sense to our highly specialized needs. Repeated checks on the state of training and equipment showed us that it was indeed possible to train Redacted, locations Redacted. We were not able to visualize Redacted, use for this technique under conditions that prevail. That's a lot of nonsense for saying we made it work, but it wasn't practical. Number two, we have satisfied ourselves that it is indeed possible. Redacted, 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 redacted. This is in itself a remarkable scientific achievement, knowing that cats can indeed be trained to move short distances. We see no reason to believe that a redacted cat cannot be similarly trained to approach redacted. However, the environmental and security factors in using this technique in a real foreign situation force us to conclude that for our redacted purposes, it would not be practical. Number three, the work done on this problem over the years reflects great credit on the personnel who guided it, particularly redacted. And I believe that is Bob Bailey, who we spoke to, whose energy and imagination could be models for scientific pioneers. This version of events makes sense, and it presents the program in the kind of light that the CIA favors, where the operational details are glossed over by tales of technological wizardry and American can-do spirit. The fact that it didn't work is just another colorful tale in the history of the agency, filed for posterity alongside Castro's exploding cigar and Maxwell Smart's shoe phone. This is Smart. Maxwell Smart, Agent 86. But what if Acoustic Kitty didn't stop in 1967? And moreover, what if these cats were actively transported to Moscow and put into operation? According to Bailey, who ran the program for the CIA, this is indeed what happened. But you got no, no. We did, it did not. It did not quit in 1967. It didn't. So, so, so these cats were put into operational uh, duty then. Yes. Yes, and uh, we continued well into the 70s. Can you say where some of these cats were deployed, or is that still classified? Well, they've already said they were in Moscow, so I'll say they were in Moscow, but I won't go beyond that. Okay. 
And 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 do you know in 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 what context they were deployed in Moscow? These cats? No. Well, yes, I do, but I can't say. Okay. So so these cats they were flown over on on special military aircraft, uh, you know, by the central. How were they transported? They were considered uh, uh, to be. Um, uh, see what was the term? Uh, diplomatic. They were in diplomatic pouches. Now, a diplomatic pouch can be the size of a car, uh, uh, but they, they were sent over in uh, boxes uh, to uh, wherever they were going to be operated. Now, did they have you join these animals in the field, or did or did your work end? after the training was complete or or, or or were you a package with these animals on, uh, on in certain circumstances? I won't answer that. In Bob Bailey's telling, like Jason Bourne in Project Treadstone, there was always more than one acoustic kitty. In fact, the program grew to involve the construction of fake Moscow streets and buildings where the cats were trained on the sprawling back lots of ABE. Yes, we had a little uh, false town, uh, make-believe town. We had 270 acres of pretty mountainous areas. So uh, in the back country of our uh, location, we built a small town. And uh, uh, we could configure the town based on the information supplied us. Bailey goes on to explain that they trained several cats for spy missions, as well as dogs. Later, the program grew to include the use of ravens, who were trained to carry super compact listening devices and place them next to windows guided by a laser pointer. This included a training session at the now infamous Watergate Hotel. Uh, to see, it was in, it was either 1969, 1970, 71, right in there we were flying to the Watergate. The, the birds would carry a device uh, in, their, in their beak, and this device was a microphone, a very sensitive microphone. And the bird would press it up against a window, and you could hear what was going on inside the room with this microphone. Now, was the Watergate chosen because of the existence of the DNC or was it because it was, <laughs> um, I was wondering, you know, in hindsight, it's, it's, it's kind of a white elephant. I have to ask. Yeah, I, I have no idea. And I, I've wondered myself about how I didn't select the target. Now there were other targets. It wasn't just the Watergate. Of course. Of course. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a you know, nice looking big building and, uh, they just said, okay, set up here and uh, shoot your laser. And we were using laser guidance on this thing. Put a laser spot up there right. and go to it. But uh, but in hindsight, when this stuff's unfolding, are you like, hmm? Well, yeah, but but I doubt that. I, I really, I, I doubt it. But uh, it could have been, you know, who, who knows? Um, I didn't ask that kind of questions. No, why of course not. You were in certain areas. Well, we asked questions and they usually answered. Uh, they didn't tell us to shut up or anything. Right. Uh, but uh, we had gone to so many places uh, because we were, we took these ravens all over the United States. Uh, 
I still have a uh, uh, the one of the cases, and it's a it's a map case. You've seen a map case like the pilots carry when they go on the airplanes. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, there's a map case uh, that I have uh, still one of the many uh, that have air holes in the bottom of it, and it could carry one cat or it could carry two ravens. Uh, and I would carry it on board because there was no inspections like right now. You just walk on with whatever hand luggage. So that's how you would travel was on a, on commercial airlines? Sure. Okay. Travel on commercial airlines. And uh, we developed uh, a, a package that the uh, operator could take. Uh, uh, again, I can say I went on some of these. But most of the time, the Raven systems were operated by people we trained at ABE. Okay. And, and they took it elsewhere. Now, there's sometimes where, where I went. But you, uh, went on, you went on actual field operations? Yes. And, so, and were these uh, international or domestic or, or both? Uh, they were never domestic. And I, I want to interject one thing yeah. here. The CIA then was very sensitive, very sensitive about doing anything in the United States that would violate their charter. Right. And they explained to us very carefully that at no time would we ever be asked to operate any of these systems in completion in the United States. So when we went to the Watergate, when this bird went out with this device and it went to a window and the device was put, no one was allowed to turn on the device. Right. It was just for training, a training scenario. It wasn't it was an operational a, scenario. It wasn't an operation. The equipment, everything was perfect. We could operate uh, the system of uh, just putting the device on the ground and listening to it. So we knew the operation, the, the system worked, the sound worked, the uh, electronics worked, but the electronics would never be turned on when we were in the United States, when we would be flying a bird from one location to another location. Understood. So when you were on going on actual field missions, you were traveling internationally then? Yes. Okay, but you can't say where you were traveling. No, no. Un, 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 understood. Um, and and how long did your relationship, did ABE's relationship with the intelligence community go on for? Uh, about nineteen seventy-six. So a full nine years after the official claim that Acoustic Kitty ceased operations. It did indeed finally stop. According to Bailey, both the animals and the equipment performed beautifully the entire time, and the project itself was shuttered in the midst of the now infamous church committee hearings that in the wake of Watergate were convened by Idaho Senator Frank Church and looked into the CIA's long history of targeted assassinations, domestic spying, and revelations of shocking abuse within its MK Ultra operation where subjects were unwittingly dosed with LSD without their consent and suffered grievous mental harm. The hearings angered a nation still reeling from Watergate. 
The revelations also implicated known Chicago Mafia chieftain Sam Giancana, who was recruited by the agency in a plot to use the mob to assassinate Fidel Castro. In the week leading up to his testimony, he was murdered along with fellow mobster Johnny Roselli, who was to testify before Congress as well. His body was found dismembered in an oil drum floating off the coast of Miami. John Rosselli testified last year to the Senate Intelligence Committee that he and longtime friend Sam Giancana were recruited by the CIA to assassinate Cuban Premier Fidel Castro. Before Giancana could testify, he was murdered. Saturday, fishermen found a 55-gallon barrel wrapped in chains with a body inside. The victim was identified early Sunday as John Rosselli, believed to be a key figure in underworld activities. Investigators at the Dade County Public Safety Department say they are receiving phone calls from law enforcement agencies throughout the United States about the Roselli case, and several motives into the homicide have been established. It's a good possibility, as far as motives go, that uh, it may be a power struggle or his testimony regarding the Senate subcommittee involving Castro activities. All these motives are not being ruled out at this time. According to Bailey, he'd simply had enough and did not relish the thought of ABE facing a congressional subpoena, or possibly worse. So right around when uh, the church committee uh, was looking into uh, the CIA's operations, is that when a lot of this was, was, was disbanded? Yes. Do you think it was a result of that directly, that they were concerned about the appearance of, of, domestic, of domestic operations with intelligence, or it just got, the baby got swept out with the bathwater? No, it, it was because of the church committee hearings. The, the, we were working with lots of other contractors. Okay. Uh, people, uh, all, particularly on the East Coast. Massachusetts all the way down uh, uh, through New York uh, to Washington, D.C. There were lots of contractors, as I said, that we were working with, developing the hardware for this work that we were doing. And <clears throat> suddenly, they all disappeared. And the people that we were dealing with in the, in the CIA, they disappeared, and we had new people we could no longer reach the, the other people we had been dealing with. And I was, as the person responsible at ABE, by this time I was general manager running the company, that I realized that we were in a very difficult situation. And we said, we no longer want to do the work. And so in one- Difficult felt, situation, uh, how? Well, because of what was happening, uh, we did not want to have to testify before Congress. Okay, got it. I did and not want to be involved in that. Was there a situation where you heard rumblings that you might get a subpoena to, to appear before uh, no. a committee? No, and we're getting a little bit too involved in, in the discussion here. Uh, okay. Just, I was very suspicious of where all of this was going when people were disappearing all around us. Okay, that understood. I just did not want, we were a little company in Arkansas and we did not want to be uh, branded as the, the, the lone persons uh, that were doing nefarious deeds. Because I, you know, I had no idea what the church committee uh, was going to be digging up 
in their hearings. Swept up by the tides of history, Bob Bailey relinquished his CIA contract. And from that day forward, Acoustic Kitty all but disappeared from the public record. But the story told today, much of it for the first time, is a fascinating look at the ingenuity and technological might of the United States during one of its most trying hours. Attempting to channel that power through one of the world's most obstinate animals. The cat and the fact that we trained it to become a spy also speaks volumes of this animal's singular intelligence and capacity for sophisticated spycraft. We know for certain that cats rule the internet, but now we have proof of their future genius. Could this be a harbinger of a future race of super cats? Probably not, but let us at least heed the warning. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on The Pet Show. This special episode of The Pet Show was brought to you by Audio Up Media, written and produced by me, Jimmy Jelinek, and co-hosted by Dennis Quaid. Executive producers are Jared Gustat and Dennis Quaid. Acoustic Kitty was edited by Tyler Dorson, who also did the incredible sound design. Our story producer is Emma Rapold. Please tune in Thursday for the Pet Show interview with Howie Mandel. We'll talk to you later. Meow, 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 meow.